Ah, yes, Christmas may be behind us, but we have a holiday gift just for you. And as I've always been told, it's better late than never. So despite the fact that Santa Claus already came and stopped by and hope everybody got exactly what was on their list, including a free agent second baseman, we will come through the chimney a couple of days late like crazy people covered in soot and deliver a present that you didn't even know you wanted, didn't even know you needed, courtesy of the Selby is Godcast. I'm TJ Zuppi. He's Zach Meisel. What's up, buddy? What's it like when you, you go through the holiday season with two little kids? I mean, you're, you're like such a background cast member, aren't you? Like, does, does anybody care about, do people still remember to get you gifts or do they just get them for your children? Uh, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that when I was over at, at my mother's on Christmas Day. And I used to think, I, I thought about how we used to go over there and even just three, four years, you know, four years ago before Ethan was part of all of this, that, that the tree still had the same amount of presence around it. Now, granted, I have two younger brothers that are uh, a lot younger than me. So it still was uh, Christmas time at the house um, for them. But all of those presents that are now under the tree as they were passing them out, all went in different directions. <laughs> it's like, where's where's my pile? I used to have a nice, healthy pile. Now I leave here with a set of socks. And actually, my mom got me a nice uh, winter jacket that I needed. And so I wasn't completely forgotten. I still got some good things around the holidays. So it wasn't all, it wasn't all like I was just tossed to the side, like a piece of uh, fruit cake that nobody wanted. That's good. No, yeah, I feel like, Everything I received either had my dog's face on it or was for my dog. So it's in a way I kind of felt like a parent in that sense where the children definitely uh, steal your thunder and you're, you're kind of out of sight, out of mind. Well, the, the, the nice thing is, is being a dad and probably most dads can relate. You're just as surprised by what the kids open on Christmas Day as they are. So right. you're looking forward to it just as much. You don't know what's going to be under the tree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, my, my wife's grandmother, we, apparently we got her a, a book that she really wanted to read this year. And so I've tried to practice the hundred things tribe fans need to do before they die. No, but you, you, you work on that face that you make when the recipient of the gift you don't know about opens it <laughs> and looks at you to say, thanks so much. This is what I wanted. And you have to have that look of like, basically just like confirmation, like you nod your head, like, yep, we knew that that's exactly what you were looking for. Um, and you have to like, you have to have that like cheer on your face and you can't be surprised when they open it. You, you have to make sure that you're acting as though you've seen that gift before. So, you know, it's, it's takes a very careful preparation to, to get it right, I think. My mom used to have the surprised face, but that was because she would lose track of what everything was. So then she'd be like, I think this belongs to you, and I think <laughs> this belongs to your brother. I don't remember what this is. I hope it's all in the right order. So she would just cross her fingers and hope that if there was a, like, you know, you get a tandem gift that goes with a bigger gift, and she would hope that you didn't open up the secondary thing first because that would be a dead giveaway. She had to pray that she got it all right. So no uh no holiday mishaps this year. We're all good. Well, the Indians, you know, they, I think the whole Cleveland fan base thought over the weekend, 
might there be a trade of Francisco Lindor? We, we had heard the Indians kind of wanted to speed up this process, setting an arbitrary deadline, trying to get teams' best offers. And lo and behold, on Monday, uh, they made a move with a switch-hitting middle infielder. It just wasn't the one people were necessarily expecting at that time as they get their fans a little gift. Cesar Hernandez, he's a guy we've talked about on this podcast before who would be a sensible fit for them, and I think it basically is just that, right? Solidifies their infield, um, is a solid, unspectacular player, and for $6 million on the free agent market, what else can you expect? Well, how often do Indians fans get to say, my team, the Cleveland Indians, came away with the best free agent at the position of need that they had? Spectacular. Amazing. Because Cesar Hernandez probably was the best of the bunch of the free agent second baseman, depending on what you thought of Jonathan Scope or late season career trajectory of Esdrubal Cabrera or Brian Dozier. The guy that had the most upside in my mind, and at the very least I knew was going to be a league average player, was Cesar Hernandez. And so while it's not sexy to say, well, add a couple of wins to the Indians total, it actually should kind of be sexy to say add a couple of wins to the Indians total. Because we saw what happened last year when they had sub-replacement level players playing way too much. And for me, even average, as you put it, turning an F into a C is nothing to be too upset about. It's not quite opening up that that pair of socks on Christmas Day. Maybe it is, actually, because the pair of socks don't look great on Christmas Day. But when you open up the drawer and you finally get to rip open that plastic and you put on the fresh pair of socks for the first time, it actually feels pretty badass. And you kind of appreciate it later on. So maybe that's what Cesar Hernandez will be, that pair of socks you, you didn't know you needed. Yeah, I mean, it, it's solid. It was necessary, and I think they can't be done. This can't be it. We we talked earlier this offseason about how, you know, there were two ways they could go, essentially, where you can trade Francisco Lindor and, and get younger and try to be, I guess, more well-rounded just for the future. Or you keep him for the next two years, and you build around him, and you put as competent a team on the field as you can, and and at least at this point, since Lindor's still on the roster, like you, you hope that that's the way they're going to go. And so Hernandez is step one, but like as we've said, they could still use help in the outfield. They could use help depth wise, pretty much everywhere. And you know, they, <coughs> Excuse sure, me, I've had this, I've had this cough all holiday season now. I well, can't and get they, rid of it. they, I mean, it, they've saved money, like. Does the payroll really need to be $90, $95 million? Like, can you at least hike it up not. to 110 115 Um, Are you trying to win a title here? I'm not, again, we're not saying that you need to spend, like, irresponsibly and recklessly. Um, but you, you should have some flexibility here to try to win a World Series. And you don't want to limp into a season with Greg Allen and Delino DeShields fighting for every day of bats. Like, let's go. So... Yeah, I mean, we don't need to spend 30 minutes on this because I know we have something else we're going to dive into. But yeah, uh, do we it, ever. It was, it, it was a solid move. It, it was good to see them be somewhat aggressive and, and make this move instead of maybe waiting until early February to solve what was the most glaring hole on the roster. 
it does speak, I think, at least a little bit to the fact that they really wanted him because mm-hmm. they could have just sat around and wait for more of these second basemen to come off the board and probably come away with a guy at half that price. But he wasn't going to have the upside that a 29-year-old does that throughout his career gets on base 35% of the time. And uh, while his offense dropped uh, somewhat over the last couple of years, even in his worst offensive season, he's 10% better than Jason Kipnis was last year. And as I said, you're adding two wins to the total that essentially weren't even there because they had nothing projected out of the second base position. Second worst projection in the majors before they signed Hernandez. And now they're a little bit closer to the middle of the pack, being middle of the pack with star power that they have in Lindor and Ramirez and other positions. And of course, even losing Kluber, having two studs to lead up your pitching staff, it's going to give you a nice baseline to work off of. And so in signing Hernandez, the Indians sit here today, and I don't think the Twins are done by any means. And if they are, holy hell, what the hell are they doing? Uh, the White Sox have had a really fun, sexy offseason, and it's good to see a bad team try to get better. All that said, the reality is the projections say the Indians are still the best team in this division. I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all, but it does at least paint a better picture than even probably we have painted at times throughout this offseason. Yeah, well, hey, anything can happen. And it'll be nice to see more competition in the Central next year. Um, I, I'm still a little skeptical of the White Sox just because, first of all, that lineup is going to be really dangerous, especially once they call up Nick Madrigal yeah. and, and Louis Robert after they manipulate their service time a bit. Um, but that, that lineup is going to be super deep, super talented, and, and versatile. The pitching staff has so many question marks. They've done nothing to help a really crappy bullpen and they need guys to not regress too. And that's asking yeah. a lot. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, all I know is in, you know, 22 years ago, an 86 win Indians team went to the world <laughs> series. So uh, anything can happen. What and, do you know about that? <laughs> well, we wanted to try something different and I think we teased it in the past, but um, we had the idea that, what if we went back to some of the most memorable or even weird, quirky, like off the beaten trail games in Indians history, more so probably the last 25 years or so since we've been cognizant of what baseball is. Um, and even more so games that we can go back and watch the full broadcast that helps too. Yeah. But so it's interesting just because obviously we all know like, the 2016 World Series Game 7, we all watched it. Many of us were there. It's still on YouTube. You know, you remember everything about it. Social media existed. But, like, the 90s and, and before social media existed, it's, it's so interesting to go back and watch these games or these moments and think about, like, what would you have been thinking if it was possible to, like, text your friends during the game or if you could be tweeting with people about this game? Um, and it gave us the idea to, like, what if we go back to some of these memorable games, we watch them, and then we just dissect them in ways that they probably weren't dissected because, you know, you basically – the only coverage you had of sports in 1997 was – a little bit of TV analysis and a game story in a notebook in the newspaper. And and so I, I thought it would be fun if we, we started with probably the, the worst choice we possibly could have, because it's, it's more than four hours long 
on YouTube, and the game itself was nearly five hours long. Um, but we started with game three of the 1997 ALCS. And I know this is not the game that, like, you know, the, the 90, first game in 95, obviously, people remember for the Tony Pena home run, Albert Bell's biceps. People remember the game seven loss in 97. Um, they remember the, the game where Sandy Alomar hit a home run off Mariano Rivera in the ALDS that year. This is a game that kind of flies under the radar, and it's a series that I don't think gets enough attention either for its quirkiness, its, its drama. Um, but this was a fun one. And so we went back and we spent way too much time rewatching <laughs> this game and taking copious notes, and now we're going to dive into it. Oh, I can't confirm way too much time. This this took me three or four days to finally get through. Part of it is I've got kids in the background screaming, and they only want to watch Earl Hersheiser throw for so long before they demand to see uh, Ryan Toys Review making $36 million or whatever that eight-year-old made this year on YouTube, going back <laughs> over there and making sure he makes another million dollars next year. Uh, but I thought it was it was going to be fun as you said, to talk about a game that maybe that you remember, but you don't remember. I, I think everyone remembers how that game ended, spoiler alert, and we'll get there. But I didn't remember, I remember bits and pieces. I didn't remember all of the, especially late innings and beyond things that happened in this game. It was crazy. And it became a really good one for us to start on because it does provide so many different talking points. So I, I was excited to dig in and watch it through the lens that I now have in 2019 going on 2020, looking at a game that was broadcast in 1997. This game had absolutely everything. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. I sat down and I, I opened it and I said, oh my God, four hours? What is this? <laughs> what? But then, like, I think I, I texted you at one point and I was like, I have taken so many notes, and there's still three you hours just, left. You could just hear all of this. It's just ridiculous. I, I, I've taken four or five, four pages of notes here, bleeding onto a fifth page. Uh, so let's crazy. Well, let's let's set the stage here. Um, so the Indians, it was not. This was this was supposed to be their worst year in that stretch of the late '90s because they really were just treading water all season. Um, they, they, they were fortunate to win the division. Uh, the White Sox bailed midseason. They ended up winning 86 games. The players that was all... The, uh, that was the white flag trade, weren't That was the, the white, white flag trade, yeah. Players will say that... Game or two behind the Indians, and they just gave up. Yeah, everything changed when they hiked up their socks on Jim Tomey's birthday on August 27th. And, like, there's some truth to that, I guess. I mean, they, they played well down the stretch, and, and they kept wearing the socks, and... They obviously went to Game Seven in the World Series, but like they, it's it's not like they went fifteen and zero. I mean, they won that day and they were pretty good the rest of the season. Um, but th they get to the ALDS, they're down two to one against the Yankees. They're losing in Game Four. Sandy Alomar saves the day. They win the next night in Game Five, and they advance to face the Orioles, who won ninety eight games. Um, they were really really good that year. They had a deep lineup. They had Scott Erickson and Mike Mussina atop their pitching staff. Um, they won the AL East. People just think that the Yankees dominated every season, and that wasn't the case this year. I mean, they had Roberto Alomar, Rafael Palmero. They had Harold Baines and Jeffrey Hammonds and Brady Anderson. I mean, they were really, really good. And 
they had beaten the Indians the previous year. So it's it's 1997, the ALCS. Scott Erickson pitches a gem in game one in Baltimore. The Orioles win. Game two, uh, the Indians make a late comeback. Marquise Grissom hits a three-run homer in the eighth inning to tie the series. Things go back to Cleveland. Um, and the first thing that I noticed about this this game, which aired on Fox, is you had like the the little intro package yes. with a super over dramatic baritone voice saying like innings passed, tension mounted, key plays were made, and then the voice gets even lower and it says and then and it's like previewing Game Three. Today in Cleveland, it's Game Three of the American League Championship Series. The Indian Summer continues. The O's Jimmy Key was spinning out of control when Cleveland's Manny Ramirez blasted for two. Well hit, Brady Anderson at the track at the wall. He won't hit this one. But Cal Ripken Jr. looked to make his mark in the series with his first ever postseason home run. Into left field, track, wall. Innings passed, tension mounted. Key plays were made. Then, Orioles shortstop Mike Bordick looked like he would play the unlikely hero. But the normally bulletproof Baltimore pen snapped in the eighth. That's the second walk of the inning, and the tying runs are on for Cleveland. And it was the primetime playoff performer, Marquise Grissom, who stepped to the plate with the game on the line. Deep left center field. Gone! A three-run home run for Marquise Grissom. And in one brief instant, Cleveland regained new life. Today on the mound for the O's, it's Mike Messina, one of the game's most stoic starters. As for Cleveland, Oral Hershiser's fire and intensity make him one of the strongest competitors in postseason history. Now, the battle is set to begin again as the O's and Tribe take to the Jake. Game three of the American League Championship Series, next on Fox. It's like we never get those anymore. I miss no, those. No, so much nostalgia hearing the old Fox voiceover guy. It wasn't even – now it's, you get some of that. Like I think Matt Underwood tries to do some of that with intros to some of the, the STO games. But this it, – it laid out everything that happened in game two. And then Marquise Grissom stepped to the plate and the October star hits one into the – and it, it just goes on and on. And I'm, and I'm watching it going – Nowadays, you would never, they would never let them run a two, two minute and 30 second intro. They would want to get the hell into the broadcast and fluff up the whatever pregame show is brought to you by. And we need to hurry up and get that out of the way. So I, I, I so much love that in this video, which I'm going to put the, the actual YouTube link because it's in the MLB, MLB vault. That's how we watched it on YouTube. I'm going to drop the link in there. If anyone wants to go in there and actually watch it themselves, <laughs> so I'll make it easy for you to hopefully find it. So check the description, the podcast description for, for today's episode. I'll drop it in there so you can watch it too. But that was the first thing that jumped out to me too. The old Fox voiceover loved it. So much nostalgia. <laughs> so we get a little pregame show with Chip Carey, who welcomes everyone to Cleveland. And I immediately groaned because the first line out of his mouth is how Cleveland is the home to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's got all his guitar metaphors, and I'm just like, ugh. And little did we know, of course, they hosted the All-Star Game that year, and 22 years later, they'd host it again with the freaking guitar 
logo because all anyone can associate Cleveland with is guitars in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and that's not what anyone from Cleveland associates Cleveland with. I had the exact same, same thing written down. Everything was about the rock hall. Almost every, the whole intro where Chip Carey is talking. And Chip Carey, it's also interesting to go back and watch this stuff because you see these, a lot of these analysts and, and hosts have been doing this for years. So in my mind, they have looked the same. And they looked, you know, a certain age when I watched this stuff. Now I go back and watch Chip Carey looks like he's 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you go to the, they finally get to the booth and there's Joe Buck standing there face to face with the two guys on his left and his right. And we'll get to that in a second. And everyone just looks so damn young. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. whoa, hey, these guys, I thought these guys were old when I watched this. And then I forget that, oh, in 97, I was in, I think, eighth grade. So that's probably why. It looks it looks jarring to me now as we watch it. No, these guys were like a shade older than you and I were. You and I are right now doing this. So uh, did you I notice? Can't wait. can't wait twenty years from now when they talk about how old we are. Yeah, really. Did you notice two minutes and ten seconds into the broadcast? Apparently, people got married outside the ballpark earlier in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did see that. Um, I, I wrote down weird flex, but okay. And the other thing that I enjoy is when when you watch the game because it's in it's in standard definition and it's been run through probably twelve VHS units, it doesn't look great. So that it's a dead giveaway that it's an older video. But if you just watch the players on the field, I don't know that you could tell necessarily how far back it is compared to now. But when they show the crowd, holy hell can I tell that this is from the late 90s with what the people are wearing and what their freaking hair looks like in the jean shorts and fanny packs of, and, and people just look like they just got their perms done and then they're at the ballpark. And I'm thinking... Big round glasses. We looked like that in the late 90s? I, I don't remember that, but apparently we did because that's what everybody in the, the entire crowd looks like. So there's... There's two storylines that Steve Psycho Lyons brings up on the quick little pregame show. And I want to make note. He first, so he says, he knows that Mike Mussina is just one in two lifetime at Jacobs Field. And I'm like, okay, so am I supposed to love the Indians' chances in game three then? Like, what on earth is the point of even mentioning that? Um, and it's foreshadowing too, because obviously he's going to pitch a gem and not get a win for it. Um, but in he's 1997, getting, wins and losses were all the rage. He's just getting buried for not being a big game pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, God forbid we mentioned that, like, Musina came two outs from a perfect game against the Indians five months earlier in Baltimore. Um, that Sandy Alomar had a one-out single in the ninth. It was the only base runner the Indians had all game. But let's focus on the fact that Musina's one and two in his career at Jacobs Field. That's... That's the stat to go with in your pregame show. Oh, and there's more. There are more that we will get to that are just as equally ridiculous. And then it's all about Oral Hershiser, who, of course, has the uh, the make in his career, has had the makings of an October star with what he's done with the Dodgers. <laughs> and so everybody expects he's the bulldog, right? And everyone just expects he's going to be up to the, 
up for the challenge here. It doesn't matter that it's late in his career. It's the postseason. It's all the things they say now about Madison Bumgarner. That's Oral Hershiser, the October star. Uh, it was so, so great to see that some of those storylines, uh, they're still around, but thankfully, I think some of the reins have been pulled back on how ridiculous uh, we used to get over pitcher win-loss record, certainly, and extremely small sample sizes. So the other pregame storyline is, and this one's legitimate and remarkable, and and it, I mean, it hit home too, especially after what we witnessed with, with Carlos Carrasco this year, but Eric Davis, the Orioles right fielder, was battling colon cancer during the season, and after game two ended in Baltimore, he hung back in Baltimore and received chemotherapy at two in the morning, finished it at four in the morning, and then flew to Cleveland. Um, and obviously they had an off day for travel, but then was in the starting lineup hitting third in game three. And, and the cool thing is, I mean, it, well, first of all, it came full circle because he left a game against the Indians in May with stomach pain. That's when he was later diagnosed with colon cancer and all of this started. But during his chemotherapy session after game two, he said he watched the movie major league two. I mean, this is all, this is all such a storybook uh, storyline here. I had completely forgotten that that had happened. So the first time I watched the video, I, I, I was like, what I, I had to, I had to rewind it to make sure I was even hearing it correctly colon cancer and wait he fit he just had chemo a few hours ago and now he's in the lineup for this day game against oral hershiser in all of the shadows which let me see if i actually wrote it down uh first mention of the shadows is eight minutes and 26 seconds into this broadcast and that'll play a major factor later on uh, yeah i wrote i'm sure the shadows won't come into play yeah. at all uh, not at all in any part of this game uh, more foreshadowing, but the fact that he's in the lineup, and then I, I, I just didn't have much memory of him with the Orioles, to be honest. Then I looked it up, and he had had a really good year before that with, with or no, a really good year after that with the Orioles, and his career continued after that. So, that's off. So, Eric Davis, who's getting chemotherapy, and then is back in a lineup facing anybody. I don't know how that's possible, but holy shit, just incredible. So we have Joe Buck, Tim McCarver, and Bob Brenly on the call. And keep in mind, Kyle Schwarber was only four years old at this point. So you're not going to hear Joe Buck talk about him in this game. Uh, but give it at time. At least publicly. Yeah. Um, I have an unpopular opinion. At least way back then, I thought Tim McCarver was really good. I thought him and Joe Buck had good chemistry. Um, I know we always make fun of the – we always cite the family guy line um, that makes fun of him. But, I, like, I thought – I don't know. I, maybe it was just, like, the sounds of their voices together. Like, I, I really liked that broadcast team. That's probably a little bit nostalgia-driven, too, for us yeah. as opposed to others. I'm willing to admit that that's, that's a, a possibility here. Here's another unpopular take that we've talked about privately. I think Joe Buck is perfectly fine. In fact, mm -hmm. because he has done so many big games, whether it's in football and Super Bowls or in baseball and World Series games and has done it for so long, there are not many guys 
now around now that when they do a game, it sounds super important. Bob Costa still has that feel. He occasionally still does games for MLB Network and occasionally steps in in the playoffs. And I always feel like the game, whether or not the broadcast quality is fantastic, the sound to itself, it just sounds like it's up another level. Yep. Bob Costa's doing the call. And I still get that way. I still think that way with Joe Buck. And so all, you know, all the jokes and about him being terrible uh, and it's, the memes are funny and the Kyle Schwarber jokes will never get old, but unpopular opinion. I think Joe Buck is pretty damn good at what he does. And I don't mind him on the call at all. I think it adds to the, I think it adds to the, I don't know, the ambiance of the moment. So they show a sign in the crowd. It says scalp the birds. And I just wondered if you could tell every single person in attendance that day that Chief Wahoo was going to be removed 20 years later, what do you think they would say? Side note, semi-related. In 1996, the Indians got beat on a Saturday uh, in game four. The Orioles ended their, their postseason. So my dad and I go to church Sunday morning, and the the pastor there he starts his his sermon, his homily in the middle, by un- rolling out this huge sign, and you don't know what it's going to say. And it's, he starts opening it up, and he and he explains that he had this done before Game Four took place, and it was a huge sign that said "Beat the Orioles." So then he goes up to it and he scribbles in, and he puts "up" after "beat." <laughs> So it now says, beat up the Orioles. And I'm thinking, this is the pastor? <laughs> this, is, this is the priest? This is the guy that's supposed to be bringing uh, peace and, and, and help, helping anyone through this time of, of difficulty? And no, he's right there with you saying, yeah, screw it. They lost to him. Go beat him up now. I have a question. So do you prefer, changing the topic here, do you prefer the checkered grass design that they had then or the like the straight lines they have now. I like the straight lines. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I like the straight lines, but I don't mind the checkered. It was different though. It, it, cause I didn't remember that, that design. And so I had to like, like I paused it and rewound it and I was thrown off. Um, all right. So, so, so the eventually game, it's 20, 20 minutes into this, of this recap 30 minutes into the podcast overall and the game hasn't even begun yet. And it's a four hour fucking game. <laughs> Good luck well, everybody. Yeah. One Try of my favorite things. Popcorn. So one of my favorite things happens in the top of the first oral Hershiser's on the mound for the Indians. Uh, Robbie Almar's up to bat and he keeps stepping out. Hershiser keeps stepping off. Bob Brenly says someone should throw a flag for delay a game. Tim McCarver goes 15 yards and then there's silence for a few seconds. And then McCarver goes, Oh, that's five yards. Sorry. No one acknowledges him. There's more silence. And then he goes, I was only off by 10 yards again, no acknowledgement. (laughs) And then Joe Buck just calls the action. And it's just so funny because everybody, by the time McCarver was done, he was basically a meme and like, the social media opinion of him was certainly not high, but this was a moment that you know would have been so great 
if we had social media and just kind of <laughs> speaks to what everyone complained about. But at least he could poke fun at himself. I found that funny. A pace of game goes. This might be the one. This might be the game that broke baseball as far as pace of game goes. So many throwovers, unnecessary throwovers. Now, I guess when Manny Ramirez is on first base, every throw over there is necessary. Uh, but just so much stepping off, so much wasted action. Uh, I, I don't know what the numbers were before 1997, but if you told me that this is the game that started everybody down this path of making the games three hours and 30 minutes, I would, I would, I think I might believe you. It, it's crazy because the first seven innings speed by uh, because both pitchers are just striking everybody out, turning double plays. Uh, and and nothing's Spoilers. happening. We haven't got there yet. I know, I know. But the last four innings or so take so long, and that's how you end up with a five-hour game where very little. I mean, and there aren't, there's not much offense. Um, so, a couple things. Number one, it's, it was interesting to me. John Hirschbeck was behind the plate for this one. Uh, Robbie Almar obviously had spit in his face the year before, suspended for five games. Required to donate $50,000 to charity. Hirschbeck was also behind the plate in 95, game four of the World Series. The strike zone that series, obviously very controversial. I thought the strike zone in this game was pretty liberal. Um, just there were a lot, of, a lot of ties here. A lot of guys who, a few guys on the Orioles who would eventually play for the Indians. Um, and then most importantly, which I noticed after every half inning, this was the peak Jock Jams era. <laughs> like every single time they went to break or, or the ballpark needed to play a song, you got like pump up the jam or, or like the Michael <laughs> Buffer intro. Like it was just, it was the absolute peak Jock Jams era. And I'm very jealous. I miss that. Now we, you go to an Indians game and they play like Imagine Dragons and uh, what's that band you hate? Walk the Moon? Like, Come on, give me some Technotronic or Too Unlimited. <laughs> the, the other thing that you've passed by is that Fox has now laid out the Indians' defense at the 12-minute mark here in this broadcast. And <clears throat> they might still do this. I don't know. I miss the old music that went along with the mm -hmm. defense. Just the, the guitar that's playing a little solo in the background. I don't think Fox utilizes that music anymore for the defense. Uh, but uh, all the music that Fox used felt like a nostalgic throwback. They put up the graphic and they highlight Jim Tomey at first base. And this is a defense <laughs> that has Omar Vizquel at shortstop, Matt Williams at third base, two guys that are still in the prime of their defensive careers. Uh, Marquise Grissom is no longer a stud in center field. And we will find out later in the game that that's still true. But at one point he was a very good defender in center field. Uh, you could highlight the fact that Manu Ramirez is a circus wherever he's playing. They focus on Jim Tomey and they put it on Jim Tomey because Jim Tomey committed 10 errors in 145 games at first base. And wouldn't you know it in the postseason, he has zero errors in six postseason games. Yeah. How's that for improvement, huh? A look at the Indian defense, and why not highlight Jim Tomey? Over at first base, his first year there, he's made a couple of sparkling plays defensively in this postseason. Maybe as big a play as we've seen since the curtain came down on the regular season with that divisional game, game five against the New York Yankees. <laughs> 
like what i'm so proud of how far we've come in in 20 years in baseball analysis it's what, what are you supposed to do with that stat he he, he had 10 screw-ups but he hasn't screwed up yet in the playoffs it's only six games but i guess we'll find out what happened i mean what are you trying to say had he homered yet in the postseason? So now he has no homers in the postseason. He's no longer a power hitter. Like, what are we trying to say here? I, I just, um, I know it was, they don't have all the defensive metrics that we have now. If it was back then. Maybe they'd put somebody's outs above average up there or something. But I guess errors is what we had. And the fact that he hadn't committed a single one in six games was notable to Fox. So <laughs> take that in, everybody. So the Indians lineup, I, I know you're going to call for Mike Hargrove's head later in this podcast, but I want to go over their lineup really quick because I think it's their worst lineup of this seven-year period of success. Um, and I want you to tell me how you would rearrange it. <laughs> you start with Biff Roberts. I'd start with a razor for Jim Tomey's face to get that awful goatee off of there. <laughs> Bip Roberts first, Omar Vizquel second, Manny Ramirez third, Jim Tomey fourth, David Justice fifth, Matt Williams sixth, Sandy Alomar seventh, Brian Giles eighth, Marquise Grissom ninth. How would you have rearranged that? <laughs> all I could think about was you've got all of these future Hall of Famers, possible future Hall of Famers, fringe Hall of Famers in this lineup. So many good um, – Brian Giles, as we talked about, had such a good career – I mean, we can touch on that in a little bit. And he's in the eighth spot. It's like you got all of these this great offensive talent. But, whoa, everybody, we got to get through Biff Roberts and Omar Vizquel first. We got to make sure they get up to the plate as much as anybody else. Jim Tomey, screw that guy. You're in the fourth spot. Oh, David Justice, you're down in the five hole. Yeah, sorry about that. We got to get Biff Roberts and Omar Vizquel as many times to the plate as possible. Suck on that, Orioles. It's unbelievable to me a couple things. Number one, that, that that you face the two worst hitters probably to start your lineup. And secondly, we're going to get to this. I don't want to go too far into detail on this yet, but like they were still pinch hitting for Jim Tomey in certain uh -huh. situations against lefties, which is a crime in itself. But you have Tomey and Justice back-to-back -back in this lineup hitting fourth and fifth for some reason, which is so unnecessary. If you would split them up, you probably reduce the insistence on other teams of going to that tough left-handed reliever because you're, then you put yourself in that tough position. Split them up, make them face Manny Ramirez between them. Tomi's OPS was over 1,000 in 1997. Like He was probably your best hitter. I mean, th this... This lineup is bonkers. And, and this remember, this was the year Sandy Almar had a 30-game hitting streak. He was the All-Star Game MVP. He was, he was incredible. And he's hitting seventh. <laughs> like, I mean, can't you do something with this? If you are absolutely dead set on having a quote-unquote table setter hitting first, whatever. But then at least give me Ramirez, Tomey, Justice, and Alomar in the top five or six. And Williams, I guess. Williams wasn't fantastic but he at least hit no. for a ton of power i mean it, come on like it's it's unbelievable and so this is gonna shock you but mike musina struck out the side in order in the first inning because <laughs> he only faced one above average hitter that year from that season in the first inning tim mccarver also says 
that Mike Mussina has thrown his knuckle curve since he was eight years old. And all I could think about was pitching Ninja would have had a field day with some of those <laughs> ugly swings he was getting in Little League. <laughs> oh, my God. Meanwhile, I just learned how to throw a knuckle curve five seconds ago. Uh, do you think there's still time for me late in, in my career? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, as far as the lineup, if you could reorder it any way you wanted to, I, I'm, I might put Brian Giles in the leadoff spot before I put Bip Roberts or Arviskel up there. So Bip Roberts ran a 90 WRC plus that year. The guy that he replaced at second base was better than that. He was closer to league average, Tony Fernandez. Now, a lot of that was fueled by what he did against left-handed pitching. He, was, he almost hit 400 against lefties in 1997. Um, and it is interesting that the home run he hits later in the series to help win the game six to send the Indians to the, to the World Series was hit from the left side. But he was fantastic against lefties. But you went out before September – and traded for Bip Roberts because you felt like you needed more of a leadoff presence. And you got a guy that was worse than the guy that you put that you were putting at second base. Figure that one out. And you got to hurry up and get the guy that's 10% below league average up before all your big boppers to, I don't know, get as many outs as possible. (laughs) So we go to the second inning. Um, Hershiser's is cruising. They point to Jarrett Wright who was scheduled to start game four and how he started the year in double a. And all I could think about was Shane Bieber. I was kind of reminiscent of, of Bieber's breakout. He went from double a to the majors to a, to a playoff team was scheduled to start game four of the 2018 ALDS. Obviously that series only went three games, so that never happened. Um, But I I'm pretty confident that Shane Bieber's career is going to go a little bit better than Jarrett Wright's ended up, even though Jarrett Wright had that incredible 1997 postseason run. Um, but yeah, Jarrett Wright kind of reminded me of, of Bieber in that moment. Uh, well, I, in that moment, that's fair. Sure. Bieber didn't get a chance. Just to the, the rise to stardom and, and for a team that needed starting pitching in the worst way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bieber didn't get a chance to pitch in the playoffs like Wright ultimately did. And then, of course, Wright was uh, giving huge innings in Game 7 of the the World Series later that year. I would say that Shane Bieber has already had a more successful Indians career than Jarrett Wright as far as regular season goes. Sure. They also show another Indians starting pitcher in the dugout. This one wearing a giant cast on his elbow. John... Smiley. What do you have to say about John Smiley? It's uh, it, to me, it's unbelievable. Well, one at the time I thought, yeah, the Indians went and got John Smiley. They need veteran arms. They, they, their pitching is, has been terrible. He was having an awful year with Cincinnati that year. And so his career was probably already winding down, but it is amazing that that, that thing, he goes out to the bullpen, he's warming up, he throws a curveball, his arm snaps. It sounds like the worst thing that could happen to anybody. Um, and then that's it for him. That's it. There's no comeback trail with the Indians. There's nothing. That's That was the last we saw of him. It's too bad. I mean, they, they never found, and it's something John Hart has talked about to this day, is they never f- were able to swing that right trade for the 
starting pitcher who put them over the top. And not that John Smiley would have been that guy, but it's just another example of how, you know, they tried to patch that rotation together with mid-rotation guys instead of swinging big. And in the end, it looks like that might have been the difference in them winning a World Series and and not. Um, B.J. Serhoff struck out in the second inning, and I first thing I thought of was how thrilled he probably was to not see Kenny Lofton in center field <laughs> and to see Marquise Grissom instead. Obviously, a year earlier, Serhoff hit one that looked like it was going to go over the fence uh, for a game-tie home run, and, and Lofton scaled the wall like Spider-Man and, and brought it back in. The greatest catch I think I've ever seen uh i think so austin jackson in boston probably number two yeah both are incredible i I always thought bj surhoff was so undervalued at the time if i if i went through uh, whatever video game i was playing at the time and i did like a fantasy draft before a season i always ended up with bj surhoff as my left fielder always you could get him at towards the end of your draft, and it's a solid guy you could put out there. He was never like talked to. He certainly wasn't talked up in that Orioles lineup. But I just felt like uh, he's a guy you probably want on your team with no knowledge whatsoever on the subject. Well, so that's cool. Uh, my David Justice was my favorite player as a kid. Um, I didn't say he was my favorite player. I just said, <laughs> dude, like I'm a solid, dude. I'm looking for a segue any way I can get it, man. Uh, how about in the, the fourth inning? Fourth oh, yeah, sorry, inning. this is the, sorry, we're still in the second. I'm jumping ahead in my notes. Roberto Alomar, they have a double play ball, uh, potentially hit, and the ball goes to Robbie. He throws it away as Omar Vizquel, I think, was slid in and, and broke up the double play. And it's notable to me because the ball bounces and goes into the dugout, but it would not have been an error today because you've got the railing along the dugout in in present day. But back then, there was no dugout railing for guys to stand up on or have the, the protection of those balls sprayed into the dugout. That didn't exist in 97. So that ball that he throws away into the dugout became an error. It would not be an error today. You know who doesn't make errors? Jim Tomey. Uh, Tommy let off that inning with a walk and then David Justice stepped up to bat and that he was my favorite player as a kid because that that batting stance and the swing were just so smooth and effortless um, a little little bit like Ken Griffey Jr. That's why people loved emulating Griffey for his swing and I was the same way with David Justice um, and he missed an opposite field home run by like four feet maybe and at that moment, uh, like the wind blew it, I think. And, and at that moment, you're thinking like, that's going to come back to haunt them. Like that missed opportunity, just missing that by, by such a small margin, the way Musina was, was even looking that early. Well hit to left field. Into the corner. But foul. For a strike. 0-2. David Justice goes the other way, tries to snake it down that left field line. There's a very strong breeze blowing in from right center across Jacobs Field here and probably helped push that ball foul. It appeared it had a chance when it came off his bat, but the ball kept tailing, 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 and 
ends up short of what could have been a home run down the left field line and foul. Uh, but yeah, then you mentioned uh, Matt Williams bounces into the fielder's choice. Um, the Indians go quietly. And, and this game, especially with the shadows bearing down, this game it seemed like it was going to be the first team to, to score a couple runs, was going to win it. But one other thing, remember that they had the, they showed the hit zone which shows each batter's where, where they're cold, where they're hot, and where they're hot, hot. And they couldn't think of any other word for hot, so they just went hot, hot. Not sizzling or sweltering or on fire, um, but hot, hot. And, it, you know, that that's – we don't really – do we get the hit zone still? I don't watch enough nationally televised games to know. Do they still show those? I don't think it says hot, hot anywhere in the graphic <laughs> no i don't think that's how that works uh so i'd written down about brian giles and how underrated he was he was worth four wins one season later in 1998 according to Fangraphs, four war player and he was traded for a guy that finished with less than four wins in his career in ricardo rincon how do you trade a four win player that you still have under your control for a not even a set-off. I mean, I guess Rincon, when he was in Pittsburgh, he did close some of the time. But he was essentially a left-on-left guy that could face some right-handers. And in his best year, was worth maybe a half a win. How do you yeah, do imagine trading? imagine trading a star player for a reliever. <laughs> Man, the Indians would never do that today, right? Never. I did miss the part where Ricardo Rincon threw a threw a hundred and two. Writing that down anywhere in here. Hey, you I'll skipped the part it. where you didn't mention Hall of Famer Harold Baines drew a leadoff <laughs> walk in the third inning. He's in my notes later when he let off the sixth with a hit. Just put him in the or Hall of Fame based on that. Batting behind Harold Baines was Chris Hoyles, who once hit two grand slams in one game against the Indians. Yeah, and Hoyles will play a role in this game later on, but yes, not he will. in the way that you'd think. So they present the Aflac trivia question, another thing from the past that I miss. Um, that Aflac doc. I haven't seen that Aflac doc in a while. Is he doing okay? I'm no worried idea. about him. The trivia question, Cal Ripken has not been to the World Series since 1983. It's a 14-year drought. Who has the longest gap between World Series appearances? Dennis Martinez came to mind for me because I knew he made it in 79 in that Pirates-Orioles series um, and then made it back with the Indians in 95, so I think 16 years between. That was not the correct answer. Did you have any guess for this? No, I didn't. No guess Uh, whatsoever. Well, the answer was Jim Cott. 17 years, beat Martinez by one. 1965, and then again in 1982. And it was weird. I don't know if it was just the the condensed version of the broadcast on YouTube or what, but they gave the trivia question one batter. They gave the answer one batter after they presented the question. It's like you had like 10 seconds to come up with the correct answer. Uh, and they certainly didn't have to worry about anyone firing up America Online. Yeah. And jumping on there. And later in the broadcast, I didn't write this down, but I remember it. They they talked about in the sky was the Goodyear blimp. And they said, mm-hmm. if you want more information, go to www. 
goodyearblimp.com. And I was thinking, okay, okay, that sounds innocent enough, but at the time, imagine a website gets fired at us and it's just in one ear and out the other. We're used to it. But at the time, as you're sitting at home in 1997, I mean, I, I didn't really start getting on the internet and reading Indian stories or doing any, anything until maybe a year later. Um, and so the internet's still a pretty new thing for a lot of the audience. And they're talking about this website. And then they, they said, oh, I wonder if anyone's online during this game. <laughs> and I was thinking, nowadays we're all freaking online all damn day. Our phones are never not online, but it was a big deal for them to say, I wonder if anyone is currently surfing the interwebs as they watch this game. And then they thought, huh, probably not. That's way too much bandwidth. Who could actually have a <laughs> game come into their house and at the same time be tying up the phone line? That's just ridiculous. To be fair, in 1997, we also thought by 2020, we would have flying cars and teleportation and we'd be living on Mars. So... You know, in some ways we've exceeded expectations, and in others we've fallen short. It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. So, speaking of kids, Oral Hershiser records a strikeout of Rafael Palmero, and Oral throws his—not literally throws his glove up in the air, but punches the air with his glove and screams out into the air and and, is, and struts off the mound in typical Hershiser is fired up fashion, which is always such a contrast to what he, what he is and, and was off the field, which I've heard people say choir boy. is That's a word to describe oral Hershiser and Hershiser at the time is what? 35. I mean, he screams coming off the mountain. I'm thinking let's show every old timer that's bitching now today about all oh, bat flips and screaming and in my generation, in your generation, Oral frickin' Hershiser was an old man and he was doing the same shit, so shut up. <laughs> well, remember in 95 in the World Series, he got into it with uh, with Greg Maddox and, and they were barking at each other on the mound. I can't remember if it was game, I think game five in Cleveland. Yeah, um, it was when Maddox threw up and in at Eddie Murray, I believe. Right, right, right. And... Hershazer was saying, like, you can, you absolutely can throw that wherever you want. Like, just admit that you meant to do that. <laughs> um, Maddox can put the ball in a teacup, and I'm supposed to believe that he right. let one get away up and into Eddie Murray. Sure. So, future Indian Brady Anderson ended the hitless struggle um, with a leadoff single in the fourth. Remember, Brady Anderson hit 50 home runs in 1996, somehow. And in 97, he only hit 18. But, uh, you know, just guys have good seasons and bad. Must have been the baseball. uh, Yeah. Uh, They flash back to 49 years earlier on the same date. The Indians won the 1948 World Series. And it was cool. They showed some, some photos and videos and stuff. And it's crazy to think, first of all, Back then, it was like 49 years. It's been a long time. And it's like, hey, I got bad news for you from the future. (laughs) 49 is now 71, and and the Cubs won. So you now have the longest drought in the league. But don't worry. They just signed Cesar Hernandez. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Easy, easy. I think it was a good move. Calm down. Still good to Twitter. Just a joke, everybody. It's just a joke. 
In the bottom of the fourth, Omar Vizquel swung and missed at one of Musina's pitches, and he immediately launches his sunglasses to the dugout. Like, that was the problem. The shadows are screwing him up. It's the sunglasses. It's not the fact that he should be hitting ninth instead of second. Um, and then the broadcast crew picks on John Adams. Did you catch this? Yeah, it was – what was the line? Something – Hey, honey, so, I got us. Yeah, so first of all, John Adams, news. they the show him is right next to the drummer. They show him drumming in, in the bleachers, and he looks really young. And Joe Buck says, honey, I got great news. We got season tickets to the Indians. And McCarver goes, where are they? And Buck says, well, that's the bad news, honey. They're next to the drum guy. They're in section 182. And Brenly goes, I've got a persistent ringing in my ears, Doc. It won't seem to go away. Like, how are you spending all this time picking on John Adams? He's just getting the fans pumped up. He's keeping the rhythm to the game. Tim McCarver's cracking up throughout that entire exchange. I felt bad for the guy. And now they send reporters up to do a segment with John Adams. Yeah. yeah, Now it's a cool thing on the broadcast. Back then... Who's this guy? Sorry. Sorry that that caused such a stir. So I know I mentioned earlier, John Hirschbeck had a pretty generous strike zone. With two outs in the fourth inning and justice at the plate, the mics picked up someone yelling, come on, John, you're better than that shit. (laughs) Which gave me a good laugh. Justice, another well-struck ball that seemed off the bat like it was going to be a home run, but the wind knocked it down near the warning track. Um, I know they had Davey Nelson mic'd up for this game, which was mm-hmm. random. And he said he thought it was gone off the bat. Uh, but alas, scoreless through four innings. Yeah, Jim Tomey is over there and he says something to the effect of, oh, I just told him go up there and pick on one pitch. <laughs> just, just search for one pitch. That's all you can look for. And it'll always be there, that one pitch. It's cool. It's neat. I ad- so, I ad-libbed some of that. But yeah, that was <laughs> sort of. Probably right on. And uh, um, by the way, you know, I'm sure all of this, this, this trickery with the baseball in the air and the wind and the sky, none of that will come into play later at all. Whatsoever. No, no. Bob Brenly points out, this is interesting, that Chris Hoyles behind the plate waited before he positioned himself and was looking toward Davey Nelson, the Indians first base coach, probably to make sure he wasn't relaying signs and, and giving away where he was setting up. <laughs> I was thinking, what timing? Like, were the 1997 Indians the original 2017 <laughs> to 2019 Houston Astros? Yeah, I just missed the trash can that was out there at first base <laughs> with right. Davey as he was you know, looking over there. And then, uh, hey, Jimmy! Boom! Boom! Just letting you know what's coming. Um, this game, the middle innings, nothing happened. I mean, it was like the Orioles placed a base runner on most innings. Uh, The Indians turned a double play in four consecutive innings, which was a postseason record. Mucina was striking out everybody. Uh, Biff Roberts was strikeout victim number 13 in the sixth inning, and he slammed his bat on home plate, broke his bat. Um, He tied the ALCS record with 14 strikeouts, and he needed six innings to get there. He would obviously... Finished with 15, so he'd break that record. Um, and we'll, we'll touch on this later, but he was even better in game six on three days rest, which is 
nuts because he was really, really good on this day. Yeah, it wasn't uh, all shadows. He actually has. He actually was pretty good. I know some people like to sell him short when his name came up for Hall of Fame discussion, but Mike Mussina was a freaking beast. And I know, you know, he wasn't yet. He had that bad record at Progressive Field coming into this game, and he was on the hook later on for the big fat L. But uh, he was, he was, uh, you know, quite solid especially in his Orioles days, which I remember him. Anytime he pitched, it felt like appointment television, at least to me. So Oral Hershazer's last batter in the seventh inning. Um, he's facing Rafael Palmero. There's two outs. There's a guy on first, two strikes on Palmero, and they cut to the crowd, and there's a man with tennis shoes on his hands clapping. <laughs> I was trying to think of the logic there, and it's like, maybe it's a little louder than clapping, but if anything, it's close. It's like, what's on your feet then? What's going on here? <laughs> I think uh, I think you're selling this guy short. You, know, you spend enough time in a, a standing room only crowd where it's going to be loud the whole time, and this crowd was just feeling it from pitch number one. There's just a constant buzz in the background throughout much of this game. And there would have been plenty of reasons to sit down and, and not be clapping as into it as they were. So a lot of credit if you were there that day. I will say his hands probably, you know, starting to get a little sore. Uh, you know, you, you start to feel it after the 512th time you've had your hands clapped together. So I think on his part, it's smart. You're saving yourself for the later innings, but you don't want to give up completely. Can't put on a pair of gloves because that'll just deaden the sound. So it, it stays still pretty loud. And at the same time, you're cleaning off the, the mud on the bottom of your shoes. So it's uh, taking care of two birds with one stone. But Eight, then your socks. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Your socks are covered in peanut shells. <laughs> I, I can only speak to so much of what's happening in that. I, maybe he <laughs> thought ahead and brought another pair. I don't know. So the Indians take the lead in the bottom of the seventh. Matt Williams with an RBI single. Brady Anderson got a late break on a justice single. The batter before, which sent Jim Tomey to second base. David Justice smoked a rocket to right center his last time up. Here he gets jammed with that cut fastball. Look at Brady Anderson in center field. He not only didn't step forward, he throws on the ball. Had he broken in right away, there's a chance that he may have caught it. As it stands, Justice with a broken bat hit to center. And now two on, one out for Matt Williams. To the shortstop, pass toward it into center. Here comes Tommy, and the Indians take a seventh inning lead. The Indians get a run, um, and they go to the eighth inning, and Paul Ossenmacher replaces Oral Hershiser. Paul Ossenmacher would be screwed in 2020 um, as a very specialized role, even back then, left-on-left guy. 
And now you've got the three batter rule. Um, so I wonder how that would have changed things back in the nineties with the Indians. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't have traded Brian Giles for Ricardo Rincon. Yeah. Uh, that would have been it. I'm sure it would have stopped them. All the other <laughs> stupidity that was on the table wouldn't, that didn't get it done, but that three batter rule certainly would have ended things. Uh, it did get me thinking at one point, and I think it, this is the Asamaker sequence. He comes in, he gets the first two outs, he strikes out uh, Ripken. Cal Ripken. Yeah, Cal Ripken on a heater inside, perfectly pitch, placed pitch, sequenced him perfectly. Ripken couldn't take a rip at it, if you will. Um, so then they go to a pinch hitter, and then Asamaker's out of the game. Should should the three batter rule still be a is it still in effect if there's a pinch hitter? And should should shouldn't the manager be able to counter that move? I get that if you bring the guy, I I don't like the rule anyways, but whatever it is, what it is, you bring a guy in and he's got to face three hitters. But if the strategy changes because the other team has brought in a pinch hitter, shouldn't you then be allowed to change your strategy too? No, because I think the strategy is just by nature benefiting the offense. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's going to lead to some quirks that we probably haven't thought of yet, that the league probably hasn't thought of yet. It, it's going to be an adjustment, and I think it's... I don't know. I'm really interested to see what the Indians do, because they probably wish they didn't grant Oliver Perez his vesting options, and they don't really have many I mean what are you going to do with Simber like that I, I don't know I know Terry Francona hates the rule he was speaking out against it all season he's still speaking out against it and it's going to be interesting to see how teams treat roster construction with it in mind and not just from a pitching standpoint but like is Jordan Luplo even more valuable now because you can't just turn to a right-hander if you've got a lefty in like like the situation you're presenting here it's like you have to let your lefty face a guy who destroys lefties so it's it's weird it's going to be interesting um and then the fact that it's acceptable if you pitch to the end of an inning like there's going to be a lot of chance with this and a lot of risk taking so i i don't know well if you have uh davy johnson as your manager you could probably just have him go out there and have your pitcher fake an injury and get him out of the game. Like the, they were speculating what's actually happening with Arthur Rhodes right, at one right. point later in the game, but we're not quite there yet. Sorry. Didn't mean to get ahead of you. No, you're fine. I, you know, I wanted to mention um, Omar Vizquel. A couple times in this game, he makes one of those over-the-shoulder catches um, with like Marquise Grissom charging in, about to run into him. And Omar's got his back to the infield, and he makes it look so effortless, so simple. And it's probably one of the most difficult things you'll ever watch on a baseball field. Um, but he, you know, he practiced that, and he did it in games. And it's like, it's the type of thing you would tell your little leaguers, like, do not do this. And yet he made a habit out of it and made it look incredible. I mean, he basically played center field from shortstop. It was it was amazing. And he did it in this game as well. He did it in the eighth inning. I think Serhoff was batting. Um, and yeah, just a, a treat to watch. But yeah, let's keep talking about 
Jim Tomey and his errorless postseason streak. <laughs> oh, there'll be more Jim Tomey stupidity to come. Oh, so much more Jim Tomey stupidity. I was physically upset at the strategy that was taking place later in this game to the point where I was, I was telling Ethan, my three-year-old, to, to also look at the screen and look at the stupidity. <laughs> he, even he was like, let Jim tell me hit. God damn it. You know? So, okay. That, um, that probably actually didn't happen, but I was going to say, that's not yeah. what you want. If he's already <laughs> using that sort of language. Um, well, it's allowed if you're talking about this sort of stupidity. Mike Jackson replaces Asamacher as the Orioles turn to future Indian Geronimo Barroa to pinch hit for future Hall of Famer Harold Baines. And Jackson gets Burrow to fly out. The Indians go down in order in the eighth against Armando Benitez, who I swear was he pitched in every single playoff game in the late 90s or early 2000s. <laughs> Didn't matter what teams were playing. Armando Benitez was pitching the eighth or the ninth. Um, and it seemed like he gave up like so many key home runs. It's wild. Uh, the Indians went down in order in the eighth. We go to the ninth. Um, Jose Mesa came in. So Mike Jackson faced one batter. And that was it. And they go to Mesa. And Mike Jackson yeah, was really good Protecting that year. a one-run lead. Shouldn't they have just left Jackson in the game? Well, no? I mean, knowing what we know about Mesa. Or why not bring in Mesa yeah. to close the door in the eighth? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Knowing, again, knowing what we know about Mesa and what will happen later in this postseason, sure. You, you said the same things about Game 7 of the World Series. Now, they had to pinch hit, which is what caused all of that uh, essentially to go out the window because they're playing National League ball, and they had a run-scoring opportunity, and you're not going to throw that away just because you're protecting the one-run lead. So that was sort of taken out of their hands. Yeah, I mean, this is simple to me. If Mesa's your guy and you're going to bring him in in the ninth inning no matter what, then just bring him in with two outs and nobody on in the eighth. And, and don't waste Jackson just in case you need him later. Instead, you yeah. waste both, and then you have neither guy once Mesa's done. Anyway, so... <laughs> well, you say that knowing that they've got a Jeff Juden looming back there, all right? <laughs> you just calm yourself down. That's my favorite Pokemon. <laughs> so in the ninth inning, they're talking about the crowd. Bob Brenly notes that no one has sat down all day. And he says they could take out all the seats and make it all standing room only. And McCarver goes, all SRO, right? I wrote down, yes, you want to be cool, dad. Like, cool, you just repeated what he said, but you used an acronym. Like, he so badly wants to be accepted by his peers. I love it. Uh, you're the one that said this broadcast was sounded great. So <laughs> want to read uh, that now? No, I, I enjoyed it. You're on the record. It's okay so. if, if you poke fun at them. It's that's all right. They they just want to be the cool dads. Chris Hoyles uh, leads off the the ninth with a single. Yeah, blooper. And why is that important? Well, they're going to go to pinch runner Jeff Rebelay. Hmm. That takes Chris Hoyles out of the game. 
It does. Might um, be worth remembering that later yeah. on. Jeffrey Hammonds grounds out. Rebel A gets to second base. Cool little slide to avoid a tag uh, by Tony Fernandez. And then he puts his arm up illegally, chicken wings it into the outfield. So uh, double play gone. He stays on. And then that leads to more trickery with the baseball in center field. Yeah, so Brady Anderson skies one to center. Marquise Grissom loses it in the sun? Shadows? Sky. Sky? I mean, what? It was it was very strange. Um, Twilight? Yeah, but he waited until the last minute to indicate that he didn't see it. And so Brian Giles, fortunately for the Indians, got over there in time to, to back him up. I don't know if he was just trying to trick the Orioles into – thinking that everything was fine and, and he was camping under it or what, but it was very strange. Um, and, and it didn't like, I liked the broadcast. I liked Joe Buck. I, it was very nonchalantly called. I feel like game three of the ALCS when you have, this is how the team blows it in the ninth inning is seems like a pretty momentous way to do that. And it didn't reflect that. Um, but this was, this was bizarre. You just botched, a routine can of corn in the outfield with one out in the ninth inning and your team clutching a one-run lead. Into center field for Grissom. He doesn't see it. Back behind his head and played by Giles into score is Revelé and Grissom never saw it. But did not signal until late that he didn't see it. And by that time, as it dropped behind him, the Orioles have tied this game here in the ninth. Well, this lends more credence to Brady Anderson's late jump on the ball hit by David Justice. He had a terrible jump, and now Marquise Grissom loses a ball in the gloaming. And you can see he never gives any indication until the very end when the ball is almost ready to hit the ground that he does not see it. I don't know that Giles would have had enough time to get there and make a play anyway, but normally, if you don't see the ball initially, you start waving your arms, start yelling for those corner outfielders to help you out. Right about Giles getting over there as soon as he did. I mean, he, he falls. He's trying to slide and quickly pop up and prevent any more base runner action. Uh, and he sort of falls down. But the fact that he's even over there as quickly as he was does prevent a third base situation where then a one in the dirt or a fly ball gives the Orioles the lead. So that that's one of those plays that you're told as a kid, you know, back it up every single play and, and no one will notice, but it'll be the most important thing you do. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, right, dad, this is what you're just telling me. So I don't lose focus and fall asleep out here in the outfield. No one gives a shit if I go cover this thing, but actually Every once in a while, it actually is uh, truthful. And it's a good thing he was over there as quick as he, as he was. So Mesa gets out of that. It's one-to-one. We go to the bottom of the ninth. Lenny Webster replaces Chris Hoyles behind the plate. Put that in your back pocket. And Manny Ramirez draws a leadoff walk. So the Indians have their base runner. They've got the winning run on base. And it's so <laughs> good because they've got their best hitter coming up. <laughs> Jim Tomey comes to bat 
And immediately Tim McCarver mentions how Jim Tomey dropped down a sack bunt in the decisive Game 5 of the ALDS against the Yankees. In Game 5, Jim Tomey laid down the first sacrifice bunt for him since 1994. Of the 17 players that hit 35 or more home runs this year, Jim Tomey is the only one who has sacrificed the whole year. And here he is in a sacrifice situation, again facing Orozco. And that it was his first sacrifice bunt in three years, and how he has another sacrifice bunt situation right here in this moment. First of all, Terry Francona is somewhere screaming, hell yes. <laughs> Secondly, I'm sitting here just absolutely blood pressure boiling, looking for my uh, bunting is stupid t-shirt. <sighs> Jim Tomey's OPS was over 1,000. Like, it, it, I don't care if a lefty's on the mound, a righty's on the mound, a Martian is on the mound. He needs to be swinging away. You cannot have him bunt. How is this even a topic of conversation? And he squares to bunt, and it looks so freaking weird. Oh, it looks bad. It looks really bad. So not only are you are you taking the bat out of your best hitter's hands, he also looks like shit doing it. It's so it's <laughs> odds are it's not going to be a good bunt. So you're just wasting this for nothing because that's what the baseball manager guide said you needed to do way back then. And it was almost like baseball karma. It was like the baseball gods looked at this shit and said, you see what the fuck they're doing down here? Hey, Manny <laughs> Ramirez, fall the fuck asleep over there at first base. Yeah, go pick him the fuck off. Sorry, I'm using a lot of F-bombs. And That's all right. You're just but... quoting your three-year-old. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. What are you doing? You've got a guy that hits him out of the park as frequently as anybody. Earlier in the, the broadcast, they're making light of the fact that he points his bat to center field, and, and Tim McCarver says it's Ruthian. And then he mentions his home run total and says, that's also, also also Ruthian. Well, here comes the guy to lay down a freaking sack bunt. I am so glad that Manny Ramirez got picked off for his base because that meant that you weren't going to lay one down, although I still wasn't sure. I thought maybe he'd bunt for a hit because, you know, you really need a base runner in this situation. Holy crap. What was that? Someday I'm going to write a piece proving that Manny Ramirez was a secret genius. And everything he did in his career was actually really smart. And this is going to be one of the main points, is that he knew how stupid it was for Tommy to bunt in this situation. So he purposefully got picked off to prove a point. And, and did to you make see sure how that it didn't happen. Mike Hargrove is just seething. On, after this happens, he is so pissed. And not because the Indians weren't going to win this game now, potentially. It's because that he didn't get Jim Tommy to lay down the sack bunt. That's why he's just so upset. How dare Manny Ramirez deny us the greatness that would have been Jim Tomey giving himself up to move a runner up 90 feet, when in fact he could have just as easily flicked his wrist, hit one over the fence, and sent everyone home happy a little bit earlier. And you My know what God. else he could have done? He could have done what he did as much as any player in baseball. He could have walked, which he did. You didn't even need to bunt. He got four balls. He's on first base. You could have had first and second. And guess what? Matt Williams singled later in the inning. You could have won it in nine. This podcast could have been much shorter. Instead, we have to go several innings more. Um, so, yeah, Tommy walks. Justice strikes out. But at one point in the at-bat, 
he thinks it's ball four. Hirschbeck calls it strike two. Justice like started to toss his bat away and somehow was able to like pull up just enough to flip it to himself and catch it. <laughs> so Even cocky. Everything he did looked so cool and smooth. <laughs> oh, he was the best. I remember in 95, he checked his swing and he would do this frequently, but I, it was the first time I ever registered it as a kid. And being an Indians fan, seeing the Indians play the, the Braves and him in the World Series check his swing. And then he would do that thing where he would hold it for a split second and mm-hmm. then he would drop the bat and catch it further down, but always keeping the bat wherever he was trying to position his half swing. And as, as someone that was watching you from the other side, you got so upset seeing this cocky SOB do this. And when he's on your side, you're like, yeah, man, that's so freaking cool. Justice ultimately struck out. Williams singled. He had first and second. He could have had the bases loaded or won the game. Sandy Elmar grounds out. They show replays. It looked like he was safe. He would have had the bases loaded um, with two outs. But instead, yeah, we go the, to extra innings. The, the finality of bad calls then. It, it's just so commonplace for us now when there's a bang-bang play. Everyone sort of half jogs off but waits to see if the other team's going to challenge it and if it is a bad call you, you know the inning's going to continue now it's just like well he's looks like he's safe but he was called out so everyone off the field and we're going to extra innings and that, that was it and as a manager my cargo runs out there but what is he going to do you're wrong no i'm not okay see you later like, <laughs> <laughs> Like the, at that point, the first base umpire just goes, you tried to bunt with Jim Tomey. Go back to the dugout. <laughs> Hargrove's just like, all right. So we go to the 10th. Uh, Vizquel robs Cal Ripken on a flare to center field. Let's give McCarver some credit. He says, I get the feeling that when the game's over, he's going to drive home backwards. I thought that was a great <laughs> line. Um, and Bob Brenly follows it up by saying, Omar plays better with his back to the field than most guys do facing home plate. Can't say that about Jim Tomey at first. Yeah, well, I see zero errors still to this point in his postseason, uh, 97 postseason run. So, Yeah, think well, about, swearing up to bunt was the word. biggest error he made all season. So, <laughs> All right, Skip, I'll just do whatever you want. <laughs> the Orioles went down in order in the 10th. And here I comes. I apologize to Jim Tomey, by the way, for my awful, awful impersonations of him throughout this podcast. I apologize, Jim, if you're listening. Here comes Arthur Rhodes, a future Indian and future Omar Vizquel adversary. Um, he sets down the Indians in order in the 10th. But first, the game was paused for a second because they thought someone might be hiding in the trees in center field. It was very strange. Like, the cops came out from the bullpens, and they just looked to center field. There was no one there, and then they went back, and I'm like, what? I don't know. It was very that odd. Was, that was the guy relaying signs. I thought it was just a shirtless Dennis Maniloff out in center field, <laughs> swinging uh, his shirt over his head. That's the guy that Rick Porcello was looking for in 2016. I could not <laughs> give up three home runs back-to-back-to-back on pitches in the middle of the freaking heart of the plate has to be somebody stealing signs out there. So Jeff Juden comes in for the Indians in the 11th. Several things we notice. Number one, a pitcher wearing a single digit will always look weird. Number seven. Uh, Secondly, 
he's a big dude, and his jersey was like three sizes too big. <laughs> I was trying. He he looks like I don't know if it's the in a movie if he's like the neighbor that just doesn't get along with the main character and just doesn't agree with whatever the the main character does and is always just scowling from the other side of the bushes or if he's like the principal in some teen movie. I I don't know. I just couldn't quite place what he looked like to me while he was on the mound. Well, you're on on the right track because my third note about him was that he was chewing his gum with his mouth so wide open. And this is while he's pitching. (laughs) Yeah, he reminded me of like, I had the same type of thought. He doesn't look like the guy, but he just reminded me of maybe like the, who was the bad neighbor kid in Toy Story who like blew up toys? <laughs> Sid? Yeah. I don't know why he came to mind, but like, he looked like like a kid bully from a movie. Yeah, something like that. I couldn't quite place it. But he comes uh, out throwing 97, and then by the end of the inning... Or at the end of his appearance, he's throwing him ninety, just trying to keep him in the strike zone. Was not, yeah. was not what you want. He looks like the type of guy who would yell "O'Doyle rules" after a strikeout. <laughs> wow, that's two movie references within five seconds of each other. That's got to be a new record. Yeah, if, if I uh, make a Lion King reference, I hit bingo for all the movies I've ever seen. Um, Joe Buck mentions that cops will be joined in progress following the game. Why are we the same? Well, <laughs> because there's I've got that written down several times here, <laughs> but we'll get there. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, Juden well, strikes out the first sure two guys. Stay tuned for America's Most Wanted next. <laughs> Juden strikes out the first two guys, then he can't throw a strike. There's a walk to Brady Anderson, who steals second. He intentionally walks Roberto Alomar. Lenny Webster with a little infield chopper loads the bases. Alvin Mormon comes in, strikes out Palmero to get out of it. Um, and we go to the bottom of the Alvin 11. Mormon. You yeah. know, I, I jokingly bring him up many times because he just always felt the Indians had so many secondary left-handers in their bullpen in this era. And he always stood out to me as the first guy I always think of. So when we do these random Indians of the day, He's one of the first ones I think of It's a, if it's a reliever from this era. I didn't remember him actually coming in and giving the Indians a huge critical out in the postseason. Uh, but he did in this game. All right. let's. I know you're going to want to go on a rant here, so I'll set you up. Omar Vizquel leads off the 11th with a walk. First, the microphones pick up Davey Nelson telling Vizquel that Rhodes, quote, doesn't have a good move over here. I was like, why? Like, I was actually surprised that they they aired that. Um, and so, Manny singles. Vizquel goes to second. First and second. Nobody out. Jim Tomey at the plate. Do you sack bunt? Do you let him swing away with his 1,000 OPS? Nope. You pinch hit. Kevin Seitzer off the bench. Batting for Jim Tomey, who finished sixth in MVP voting, hit 40 homers, hit 25 doubles, led the league with 120 walks, and instead they opt to send up Kevin Seitzer to face Arthur Rhodes. Take it away. And while all 
while that was going on, here's Kevin Seitzer off the bench to bat for Tomey. With Jim Tomey up there, I think the Orioles were expecting the bunt. And now you put Kevin Seitzer up there, he's probably going to be bunting also, but at least if it gets to two strikes, he'll be able to swing away. And the Indians wouldn't be hurt by that. We'll see if the Orioles put the rotation play on. With first and second, the third baseman, first baseman charge. The shortstop goes to third, the second baseman goes to first. If the rotation play is on, or the wheel, as some like to call it. And I don't know how many postseason games feature two future Hall of Famers getting pinch hit for. And the two Hall of Famers are not at the end of their careers, by the way. They're still very good, valuable players. I don't know how you'd research that, but that to me was uh, was interesting. That you're, that you're that so heavily tied to righty-lefty matchup that that could even happen. If you're going to do it, give us Jeff Manto. Give us the guy that has just owned AAA pitching for his entire life in this situation. Kevin Seitzer, it just feels like, eh. I mean, he, was, he had been acquired in 96, and he was good at the end of the year. and He had a good year in 96, but he was not good in 97. This was his last year in the majors, if I'm not mistaken. And it's Kevin Seitzer you went up there instead of Jim Tomey? I would have taken the sack bunt over Kevin Seitzer. <laughs> Well, and then in two, this is a game where one swing of the bat changes everything. This is not a, like a three, four, five run game. This is a one run game throughout the whole thing or one runner tied throughout this whole game. And Jim Tomey, the, the guy who has the biggest ability probably on either team to hit one over the fence and his, the bat is taken out of his hands twice, twice in the game. <laughs> what are you doing? Why is this done? I don't understand it. Yeah, and it's not like it's not like he's Adam Dunn, where it's like if he doesn't hit a home run, he's going to strike out. This is the guy who who had a super high on base percentage. He hit for average. He led the league in walks. So like the worst that could happen is yeah, maybe he gets out or maybe he just reaches base. <laughs> like if he doesn't hit a home run, it, it boggles my mind. And then of course Arthur Rhodes throws a wild pitch. So Vizquel advances to third anyway, so then you're not going to bunt and, and move the runner to second, so it was a complete waste of a pinch hit. Now, Kevin Seitzer should have ended the game, if not mm-hmm. for Cal Ripken making a spectacular play. It was a ground ball down the line. Ripken was already guarding the line a little bit, uh, but he makes a diving stop towards the bag, has enough thought to look glance at Vizquel, who's standing right in front of him, who can't go anywhere looks him back and throws the first to actually get the out. That should have ended the game because it was a bullet hit by Seitzer and a tremendous play by Ripken. So this this could have been a situation like in 96 where right before Albert Bell hits the grand slam off of Benitez, do you remember what happened? Do you remember what happened? Just before Joe Buck Albert said Bell that hit? cops would be joined in progress after <laughs> the game? That came after. Uh, and that was ESPN on the call. You should know that. John Miller, it's- sorry. Yes, the wide world of bowling was actually next after that. Uh, so just before that, Herbert Perry had pinch hit for Jim Tomey because they had brought yeah. in a lefty. They brought in a lefty, so you need to get Jim Tomey the hell out of the game so we can get... Uh, anyways. Uh, so 
DC Kandel, I don't. So they pinch hit somebody. It was ridiculous. And he actually reached base, and they're like, "Oh, look at Mike Cargo pulling all the right strings." Okay, I guess because it worked out. So results over process every single time. All right, my rant is over. I, I'm, <laughs> you got everything out of me. So it's it's a it's a really strange sequence because Hargrove goes to Seitzer. Arthur Rhodes is still in the game. First of all, Davey Johnson comes out to quote unquote check on an injury with Arthur Rhodes, but he was really just telling his defense how to set up. And Mike Hargrove ran out and argued and said, <laughs> the mic's picked up. He said, he always does this. <laughs> As he's leaving the dugout, he screams bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you can read it on his list. He's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and so Arthur Rhodes throws a wild pitch, and then Johnson comes out and replaces him mid at bat. Yeah. Um, what, what, 2-2 count, I think? It was, it was a 2-2 count, yeah. And so they also, before the pitching change, did you catch the graphic they showed <laughs> demonstrating how to properly field a bunt and where the, the fielder should go? Oh, this is, and for, this was, this this is was when the bizarre. wheel play, the wheel yeah. play or the, or the rotation bunt play was all in vogue. And this graphic had these super long pointy cones representing each player on the field. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen. It was so out of the 90s. Um, yeah, so, you know. Yeah, like, he, like it was so difficult for everyone to understand. Third, third baseman and first baseman charge. Shortstop goes to third. Second baseman goes to first. That's it. That's the, that's the wheel play. And they, <laughs> they, not only did they run a graphic on it, then Tim McCarver gets out the, the telestrator <laughs> and, is, and writes it on the field to show where everyone's going to go. Yeah, and, and before that at-bat, Buck mentioned cops for the second time. After the at-bat, he mentions cops for the third time. David Justice flies out to B.J. Surhoff, who is playing in. He mentions cops for a fourth time. Um, Matt Williams then is batting, and this is where things get interesting. So you have two outs. You have runners on the corners. Um, no, you have runners on second and third, two outs. And Matt Williams squares up for, uh, I guess, a squeeze bunt attempt, which was strange. I didn't even remember this happening. And there there was a controversial – it was controversial. And Davey Johnson was pissed off. Um, And I'm thinking, well, surely this is not going to happen again. And also – since when did teams get so obsessed with squeeze bunting? Like, and, and with Matt Williams, who's a power hitter, who's already had a couple of hits in this game, and you're going to go to him to lay one down with a runner on third base and two outs? It's very odd. The, and then he ended I, up walking. I, I, is it just the, the thought, the manager at the time, you just had to have your fingerprints on everything? I, I don't know. Maybe there's just was over managing a thing at that time, or was it just the Mike Hargrove thing that he liked to have so much, so many action plays happening at the same time. Just it was not the right roster to be doing that. <laughs> you had all of these thumpers, and it wasn't like they had a tremendous speed where they could just move guys and put them in motion. And I don't know seemed like the wrong sort of team to be 
focused on making things happen. You just had hitters that could probably make it happen themselves, even in a game like this. So the game moves to the 12th. Kevin Seitzer is now in at first base. So not only do you lose Tommy's offense, but you lose his his glove and his streak of errorless games. Um, I don't even know Seitzer owned a glove at this point. <laughs> With one out, in comes Eric Plunk. And we should talk about Eric Plunk because his only postseason appearance to this point was game one of the ALDS against the Yankees. When the Indians blew a 6-2 lead, the Yankees scored five runs in the sixth inning. They hit back-to-back-to-back home runs. Tim Raines, Derek Jeter, Paul O'Neill. The first two of those came off Plunk, who gave up four runs, and fueled the Plain Dealer headline the next day, which read in huge font, Ker Plunk. And here he was, game on the line, 12th inning. And this is what happens when you waste Mike Jackson on one batter in the eighth. Well, they still had Brian Anderson back there. And they were talking about Chad OJ coming into the game, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that was it, right? Yeah. Plunk and, and then Brian Anderson were the last two guys in the, the bullpen. So Plunk gave up a double to Geronimo Burrow, but that was it. Um, so we go to the bottom of the 12. Giles strikes out. Marquise Grissom walks and Probably the worst news of the night, Joe Buck says, America's Most Wanted will now be joined in progress after the game. The game has gone too long. There will be no cops <laughs> after four mentions of it. Oh, no. Oh, man. Just imagine. You. I hope that that episode eventually aired. What if that was the, the, the episode that never made it to air and was never seen? And it was the greatest episode of Cops that ever happened. And we just never got to see it. <laughs> was that episode later released? Where could I watch that episode? I, I needed Well, to, I mean, you basically watched an history. episode. You basically watched an episode of Cops because Mike Hargrove committed some major, major crimes in this game. Yes. And, and I will say, we've said this many times before, Mike Hargrove's greatest asset as a manager, and you could say this about Terry Francona too, is that he was able to keep a clubhouse together of guys that probably had no business ever playing together. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was able to keep the peace as, as best as anyone possibly could and manage all those personalities. And it's something that maybe made him the right manager, no matter what happened on the field from a strategic standpoint. So I want to say that I want to be fair to Mike Hargrove. It's not like he was a complete dummy. He was the worst manager of all time, but some of these moves in this game just left me scratching my head endlessly. Sure. And, and this is us with hindsight and with, you know, 22 years worth of evolved thinking and statistical information at our fingertips that didn't exist at that time. So it's maybe we would have thought differently at the time. Um, and, you know, I don't want this to just be a Mike Hargrove bashing session because he did many good things and he was the captain of the ship of the greatest era in, in Indians history, probably. Yeah, so. I, I, I would bet you could probably do this with any manager at this time. Yeah. Just nitpick yeah. everything that we know now, but they didn't necessarily think of that. Yeah. So Grissom's on first. Tony Fernandez. First of all, Tim McCarver. How many times did he say in this broadcast that Fernandez hit about 400 against lefties in the regular season? Um, 
I wrote down 353 times. I'm not sure if that was accurate or not. In my view, for as good as <laughs> Fernandez is from the right side of the plate, is as bad as he is from the left side. Oh, man. So that's that's a version of the, the Family Guy clip. That's so good. Um, and, of course, Fernandez with a bloop single to write off Randy Myers. Sends Grissom to third. You've got runners on the corners with one out. Omar Vizquel at the plate because he's hitting second, of course, and not one of your big boppers. Yeah, take that, Zoopy. <laughs> a two hitting second. <laughs> this game doesn't end. A two-and-one count, and Tim McCarver says, if you're going to put the squeeze on, now would be a good time to do it. They've shown they're not going to pitch out. You've had a long delay because they checked on Lenny Webster, who – yeah, got a foul got, tip to the shoulder. Yeah, he just got crushed in the, the pitch before. So, again, perfect time to do this because maybe he's a little dazed. Maybe his arm's not feeling great. Who knows what could happen behind the plate? Yeah, and I think Omar Vizquel is, is the right batter to do it with. <laughs> like, this isn't Jim Tomey. It's not Matt Williams. Like, this is logical. And you have a speedy runner at third base in Marquise mm-hmm. Grissom. So, yes, this the one time, it's bunting isn't always bad. That's the one thing that, that gets lost. It's not as if to say that there isn't a situation where bunting, where a, a bunt wouldn't make sense. It's just surely not with your best hitter in the middle of the game when one run could decide it. And so right on cue, Vizquel squares to bunt. The ball kind of trickles away. Lenny Webster doesn't really know where it is, what's happening, whether Vizquel tipped it. Marquise Grissom scored standing up. And the Orioles obviously thought Fiskel made contact with the ball. Davey Johnson came sprinting out of the dugout to argue with John Hirschbeck. And Joe Buck simply said, a 12-inning game ends on a steal of home. I think it was later changed to a passed ball and then maybe ultimately changed back to a stolen base. Um, But yeah, after 91 plate appearances, 37 players used, 33 strikeouts, Four hours and 51 minutes, which at the time was the longest ALCS game in history. The Indians win 2-1 to one in controversial, bizarre fashion. If you're going to put the squeeze on, now would be a good time to do it. They've shown they're not going to pitch out. You've had a long delay. Speed on at third. Here comes Grissom. Safe at the point, Indians win, Vizquel missed it. Davey Johnson arguing that the ball was fouled off by Vizquel. Davey's saying you've got to get some help that it was a foul ball. It looked like it was a foul ball to me. All played up by John Hirschbeck saying that Grissom is safe. At home, this looked like a foul ball. Here comes Grissom. Squeeze was on. Did he foul it? Webster dropped it. Grissom touches home. The game's over. A 12-inning game ends on a steal of home. Might add, had Webster held on to the ball, he tags Grissom out. There are two outs. Unbelievable. Grissom steals home to end this game, and game three belongs 
to Cleveland. Davey Johnson can't believe it. Mike Messina is our Chevy Trucks player of the game. Ripken still pleading his case. It's now changed to a pass ball, and that's the way this game comes to a close. America's Most Wanted will be joined in progress next. Don't forget, game four, ALCS, tomorrow night here on Fox. Have you ever seen a game in which th- three runs were scored that more happened than this game? No, and just weird one, weird things. Yeah. I mean, the, the number of times, Brady Anderson misplaying a ball in center field. Marquise Grissom losing one in center field. The number of balls early, and Justice had two balls that probably could have at least hit off the fence if not clearing the fence uh, in this game. And then he gets rewarded by the, the one that Anderson misplays. Um, yeah, just weird stuff. Sandy Alomar in positions where he could win the game, and he doesn't. And he'll be in a similar position coming up in game five, and he ends up walking it off with guys on base in a position to win the game, uh, sending the Indians to Baltimore, where they'd eventually win in game six on Fernandez's home run from the left side of the plate. Holy crap. Um, off of Armando Benitez, of course. Just, yeah, just the, the amount of things that, and so much in the later innings, this game was all about the bookends, how it started and how it ended. Because there went a good portion of the middle portion of the game where it was just, not very notable, but you had you had the most accurate text ever. In is that you sent me? I'm two hours into this game in the seventh inning, and I look down, and I still have two hours to go. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the game just ground to a halt, um, and you had. It seemed like both teams had multiple chances to score. Both teams kind of screwed themselves, and it's just, it's so weird. At no point, like, no one, there were no important hits in this game. I mean, you got Matt Williams had an RBI single early on, but, like. But it's a it's a bleeder through the infield. It was not an impressive Yeah, hit and means. the Orioles' run comes on a misplay in center field in the ninth inning. And the Indians' next run comes on the controversial play at the plate. Like, neither team deserved to to win this game, I think. And the Indians just kind of ended up like backing into a victory. Do you have the, the Omar Vizquel quote after I I do, but before I I read it back to you, the the thing that stood out to me, um, and, and now, you know, a lot of these, especially, uh, league championship games, uh, even earlier games in the postseason, they, they don't take place on national Fox. They take place on, you know, at least a lot of them take place on, you know, F- FS1 or uh, True TV. <laughs> this isn't the NCAA tournament. Um, so there are dedicated places where they can stick with the coverage for a while. But Fox, at the time when the game was over, they got the hell out of there and then that was it. And in a game where you can see the, 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 the ending coming, they've had time to kind of wrap up everything and talk about the big plays. So when the final out comes, you know it's coming, and then it's over, and then you get a couple of seconds to say the player of the game, which was this one was Mike Mussina. Do you remember when he pitched in this game? <laughs> they say, all right, and Mike Mussina is the player of the game, brought to you by whoever. America's most wanted next. And they're playing, like, the clips of what just happened. Everyone on the field, Davey Johnson going nuts. 
The Indians, you know, Mike Hargrove doing his fist pump out of the dugout. All this is happening, and they're like, well, see you later, everybody. And then that was it. So imagine sitting at home, and, and of course we were at the time, but I, I don't remember how, how this was, sitting at home and watching that, and it all builds to that ending, and then that's it. There's, there's no follow-up. There's, there's no extensive post-game coverage. That's right. it. And, now and you have to wait till the next morning's newspaper and to find out to what it, everyone to said. To top it all off, you didn't even get to see how America's Most Wanted even started because you're joining it in progress. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just an ultimate gut punch one after another. Here is yeah, the, I thought there would be – well, I thought there would be a post-game show brought to you by like 10-10-220 or something like that, but – yeah, it was disappointing because I wanted to know more. I wanted to see Davey Johnson's press conference. I wanted to see yeah. Omar Vizquel's interview and, and hear what so, these teams thought of this ridiculous game. So I went searching for some post-game quotes. I managed to find a couple of stories, and I found one lengthy Vizquel quote in which he said, I saw Marquise go across the plate, and all of a sudden we started jumping, and we won the game. If you feel the tip, you should know it. Pause. I just bunt- <laughs> I just bunted through it. I was getting ready to kill myself because I had bunted through it because I had missed the ball and there was going to be an out at the plate. That was that was a really I, I did I was not expecting him to say I was getting ready to kill myself and that that actually made the quote and that made it in the paper that I was not expecting those words. When I actually read it, it was a different time. I mean, it's as I said to you earlier. If you feel the tip, you should know it. That's uh, I think Omar said that more than just after that game during his career. Um, I'm not gonna touch that. <laughs> wow, well, that's also uh, yeah. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, it's uh, that's a loaded quote, but it's it's appropriate because there was so much in this game. Um, that's, uh, he summed it up pretty well, I guess. And then Lenny Webster, I saw contact. I heard contact when he talking about Hirschbeck gestured to signal the strike. I thought he meant a foul ball. I didn't run and get the ball for that reason. And then Johnson said something to the effect of Webby didn't go after it. Webby, I guess the, the nicknames from Tito, uh, were also in play long before that. Webby didn't go after it because he thought it was a foul ball. Now, I just watching this over and over, I still don't know if it was a foul ball or not. I don't think we have a great angle. I also read another quote where Lenny Webster says, I saw an angle, I watched it multiple times, and you can tell 100% that he fouled it off. I think Lenny Webster is lying. I don't think there is an angle of this play where you can absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, claim that he fouled it off. I, I think you go in with whatever bias you want, and that's what the video is going to confirm. There's no way one or one way or the other to really know based on the standard definition video that we have. And the other thing is I still am not a hundred percent sold that if Webster picks up the ball, knowing that, that the ball was going to get called just a strike and it was not a foul ball that he would have had the time to reach over, grab it, and then go after Marquise Grissom, who then would have seen Lenny Webster moving with some, speed in his step and then probably would have slid to the outside part of the plate. I don't think, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm skeptical that he could have 
done all of that and tagged Marquise Grissom out as it was. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all, all that. Um, I watched it over and over again and could not tell one way or another if he made contact. Um, it's just, it's a weird play. Like, you never see something like that. And then to have it happen then to end a playoff game is just remarkable. Bizarre. Um, and, you know, the series in itself was also like, Game two, the Indians won on a ninth-inning three-run homer, or an eighth-inning three-run homer. And game three, they win on this bizarre walk-off. Game four, they win on a walk-off. Game five, they had a chance in the bottom of the ninth to erase a 4 nothing deficit. They had a tying run on base. They ended up falling short, losing 4-2. to two. But more ninth-inning drama. And then game six, when they win the series, they do it on a, on a home run in the 11th inning. So it's like, man, the series, every single game had key turning points and just ended with, with tons of theatrics. And uh, it, it's a series that like, I don't know. I, I don't know if we hold it in enough esteem just for the, how intriguing it was, but uh, I'm glad we picked this game to do this because as we sit here going on two hours, it's like there was so much and this is just one game in this oft-forgotten-about series. We'll see what the reaction is. This might be the only time we ever do this. Uh, but if you guys <laughs> do actually did enjoy it, uh, we will certainly look to do this in the future. Not all the time, but just every once in a while. Certainly in the offseason, we're going to try to do another one of these before spring training gets here uh, to have some fun with this. And again, we're looking for games that aren't necessarily... Well, first of all, we have to be able to watch the whole thing. So if you find a, a complete game of something you'd like us to recap, send it to us on at Selby's Godcast. But also games that were important in that era, but not necessarily standout games. Ones that maybe you don't think of initially, but still were important part of uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, or even if you want to go into the 2007, or even if there's a, a regular season game that was crazy enough, far, far enough back. We'll, uh, we'll even consider doing that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was so much fun. At first, I saw four hours, and I was like, oh, geez, what the hell did we just get ourselves into? Um, but as I got into it, I didn't want to stop watching. And, like, whenever I had a little bit of free time, I would turn it on because it was, it was a lot of fun to go back and watch. Um, and there was... It was bizarre. I can't wait to do this in 20 years and go back and watch. Maybe then we can watch Game 7 of the 2016 World Series, and it won't be so fresh in everybody's minds. In that game, not quite to this level, but that game also, going back and watching it, had so many different little details that I had completely forgotten about. Yeah. That... uh as you mentioned, Indians fans aren't going to want to relive for quite some time, if not ever. I don't know if we get a, even the 97 Game 7 World Series Indians-Marlins. I, I don't know if we could do that with, with that game even. We could do this with that game. Yeah, we'd I mean, that's the other thing is enjoy that. We, when we do this, we want to cover games that you guys want to relive. So that's, <laughs> that's the thing. You know, if maybe it didn't end well, but at least there were funny memories along the way. But um, this game had a little bit of everything. It was strange. Unfortunately for Indians fans, Kevin Brown got over that stomach bug that was plaguing the Marlins. 
in the AL or NLCS against the Braves. I remember that series taking place and at the time being a young Indians fan and thinking to myself, there's no way I want to see the Braves again. Yeah, bring on the Marlins. They were the mm-hmm. wild card team. Who cares? Wild card? And it is, I think, somewhat lost how much the, the 97 Indians were just expected to get bounced quickly by both the Yankees and they were supposed to get destroyed by the Orioles because this wasn't this was this this is probably the best Orioles team of that uh slight window they had in the the late 90s was it not no doubt no doubt yeah so it wasn't even supposed to be a series and they ended up winning it so incredible I've got this was fun no it was fun I'm gonna go put on some tennis shoes and give ourselves a round of applause (laughs) well as we mentioned if you'd like to uh hear us do this again drop us a line at selby's godcast at tj zuppi at zach meisel on the twitters and you'd like to subscribe to the podcast where we normally don't do this sort of thing but you can do that too apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify google podcasts or wherever you happen to catch your podcast again thank you for everybody throughout the whole year We'll be back again soon, and once the holidays are completely beyond us, we're back into a normal kind of uh, schedule here, and nothing is really ever normal for us in this podcast. But we hope everybody did have a good holiday. Hope this helped brighten your your Christmas-slash-holiday season, and hope everybody has a great new year. See you in 2020, baby. We're out of here. See ya. The Selby is Godcast, featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi, is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast, visit anchor.fm slash Godcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at Godcast. Thanks for listening.